Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Visa, aka VisaCon V on Twitter. Visa, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's awesome to be, awesome to be here. So for people who follow you on Twitter, they know uh, what you are about. Uh, but for mm-hmm. people who don't, how do you sort of uh, define yourself and what you're about and, and what, your, what your mission or purpose is? So that's complicated. I've, I, I try to have simple answers from time to time, but I, I guess I actually modify my answer based on who I'm talking to. But so you asked about a mission. I would say right now, my mission is basically to make as many interesting friends around the world as I can, as many um, you know, people who are friendly and doing interesting work, people who are nerds on whatever fronts they're on. And yeah, I'm basically trying to it's become clearer to me recently that I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at making friends and that there is a lot of value I can create in the world by connecting people to each other, which is, I guess, I mean, you can think of that as kind of a very, actually it's just a traditional networking kind of mindset. But I mean, I, I, I think about it in a very long term way. So I don't have a specific project that I'm trying to do. I'm not, you know, I don't have a, a company that I'm trying to, or a product that I'm trying to sell. I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm just a library nerd who wants to read interesting things and see interesting things happen. And so I'm just always trying to see what I can do to make that happen. And what's the difference between making a lot of friends and being famous? <laughs> and, it, a, what, and also another question around sort of how many friends can one have without sort of diluting or, you know, because attention is, is, is an infinite, right? So yeah, that, that's a very good question, actually. So like, you know, when I was a teenager, I was, I, I used to play in a band. I think, I think a lot of people, when they start out, they have kind of simplistic ideas about their social goals or, you know, like it, it's, it's a very old thing that people want to be famous. And I think what happens is people kind of conflate a lot of things at the same time. They see highly visible people who are wealthy, who are, you know, who seem to get like, oh, if you're famous, you get the nice seats at a at a restaurant or you, you know, like things seem to just go your way. And and so, because and it's interesting, there isn't really a, a very well, as in my experience, and I try to find good reading on this, and there isn't really, there isn't really a very well, artic, in my experience, I haven't found anything that's like very carefully kind of disambiguates and, and breaks down all the different kinds of, of fame, of, of status, of, of all the different things you can have. And so I think a lot of people end up, you know, like if you ask teenagers or, or young people, they'll be like, oh, I want to be a, a you know, YouTube celebrity or I want to be a you know, TikTok celebrity or, or go to, I want to go to Hollywood and be famous. Because, and, and I think, you know, sometimes people write that off very quickly as, oh, you're just an attention whore or whatever. But I think people are drawn to it because they, they think that there is, and, and semi-accurately, they think that, you know, there's significance, there's connection, there's, um, you know, social capital, there's, there's things that you'll get out of it that you can't easily get just from having money or just from having um, skills. 
Um, but so the difference between kind of just being a straightforward celebrity and having friends, I think it's it's the the thing about celebrity in the broad general sense is that a lot of people have an idea of who you are, but it's kind of one way. It's kind of um, you know it you 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 and it may may or may not be deliberate on your part i think for a lot of let's say um you know music artists the 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 image or the the identity that gets propagated is is a construct by you know your your managers your agents your the music industry or whatever and you don't have a that i mean you you may have some control over it but it's it's quite it's relatively static compared to let's say a intimate one-to-one relationship where you are constantly iterating and, and changing and, and dy- being dynamic. And so, you know, um, even in my early blogging days, so around like uh, 2010, 2011, I used to... So I started out blogging just kind of very casually, like, a, you know, here's what I had for lunch. You know, I, I went to school, I met my friends after school. And it, it started out that kind of very social one-to-one lots of friends kind of thing. And along the way, I just happened to, I think, um, write about some local media stories and some local political stuff. And that stuff went like micro viral back in the day. And that felt really, you know, like so every day I would get like one or two comments from my friends on my blog. And then one day I wrote something about like the news and I got like 15 comments from strangers. And that just felt like, oh, wow, like I, I'm relevant you know, even when people are disagreeing with me or, or you know, they, they, they don't even care who I am. They're just passing through, but they're leaving comments. And it just, it just, and I don't see people discuss this feeling enough. It's just when you're young, especially, I think it feels like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm relevant. People care about what I have to say. I feel like um, there's something there that you may not even explicitly think I want more of it, but it, it, it draws you in. It's very naturally, like if every day your blog post has one comment and one day it has 10, you're going to be like, right. oh, how can I do that again? And you try to recreate it. And before you know it, you end up writing or producing what you think will get you more of that because that feels like a proxy for connection or relevance right. or whatever. And I, I, I've slightly fell into that trap for a while and a couple of years passed and you know, I was getting lots of blog hits, but I was feeling like, it was, and the irony is it's actually kind of isolating because you're not really sharing what you're really thinking of. I mean, eh, you can say that, you know, it's an accurate representation of some subset of your thoughts and feelings, but it can spiral out into something that you didn't entirely choose or control. And, you know, I, I'm, I consider myself like a student of, of fame and celebrity and stuff like that. And I, it's always interesting how, you know, so many celebrities are so miserable and they are so, you know, just overwhelmed with like crazy fans and, and haters and, and it's always like they're never quite adequately prepared for it. It always seems to catch them a bit by surprise because I think the volume is just nobody really talks about it. And um, yeah, so I would say my goal is to try and like so I, I try and break down the kind of aspects of what you can get out of interacting with people. And I basically want uh, as much of the good stuff as possible with as little of the bad stuff as possible. And I think, um, in my experience, the best way to do that is by making kind of good friends. And so the cool thing is, you know, so I, I, I visited San Francisco uh, in May. And that was because a friend from Twitter said that she wanted to invite me to a dinner that she was hosting with a bunch of interesting people. And so, you know, I announced... 
and I have I have at the time I had like maybe ten thousand followers, which is you know depending on your context, either it's a lot or not, barely anything. And you know I can I can walk down the street and nobody cares who I am. And yet generally I can probably go to any major city and be like, hey guys, I'm going to London this weekend. Like where should I go? And somebody will be, like, oh, I'll bring you to have lunch at this place. And uh, you know I'll show you around. I'll introduce you to who you want to meet. And that that I find that that has made my life. Uh, way more interesting it has it just kind of um adds this whole extra layer of nuance it's 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 funny to have to exp- to, to to explain it because to me it's just it seems obviously a positive uh but the the the, the interesting thing is that you know there's a bunch of things that i take for granted there's a bunch of things that i have worked through that other people haven't that i don't realize that i have like what's an example there I have always, always been very eager to seek connection from others. And like now when I look back and I look at the world around me, the iron, the kind of strange thing to me is that um, so many people are lonely and disconnected. And yet not many people seem to do what seemed obvious to me, which is that if I don't have any friends, I should go out and make friends. And I think when I talk to people about this, about this, what I hear is, you know, people are scared. People don't know if it's possible. You know, they're worried about that it's going to fail or, like, you know, they're going to put themselves out there and look stupid or be insulted. And I think I went through all of that very early on, like even, even as like a child on the internet, I think, and with friends and, and with playing music. And it, it just, to me, it just felt like it's obvious that one true friend, if you can find one true friend who really gets you, it's worth, to me, it's obvious that it's worth, you know, um, going through a hundred annoying people and pointless conversations to get there. And I think people don't plan that far ahead or don't kind of frame it. They kind of, they, they try a couple of times and it doesn't work out. And they're like, ah, fuck it. This is not for me. You know, it's not, uh, it's not working out. But, you know, I, yeah. Do you have, I'm curious, do you have like 10 true friends or 100 true friends or like 1,000 true friends or 10,000? Like, how do you think about the scale of oh, tier? I think I have like maybe probably around 150 um, to 100-ish. So I follow 500 people-ish on Twitter. And, you know, not all of them are like my close friends. I would say I have like a... It's interesting. So even when people talk about friendship, that the, the concept of friendship is itself i mean even friendship is something that varies from culture to culture and context to context but for the most part when people say friend you know what do they mean they mean something like uh there's a, it, it's, it's it's a bundled thing and you can unbundle it right so like the bundled friend is someone you've known for pretty long like at least a year i think you know you've met probably you've helped each other out in some way you've shared some intimate or personal information with each other. Um, you may do activities together. There's, there's a whole bunch of things like that. And the funny thing is, you know, if you break it down, I have, so depending on which variable you think is what friendship is, is about, or like it's the main thing in friendship. So I have like, I've had many, many, many very intimate conversations with people who, you know, they don't fit my traditional, or anybody's traditional definition of friend because, you know, they might even be anonymous or they might be people who, I've never met and probably will never meet. But at the same time, that satisfies that kind of part of a stack, I guess. Which is, and, and there are people who I have not met yet, 
but you know, if I go to their city, for example, they will host me in their homes even, which is super intimate as well. You know, so I almost don't think about friendship the same way as I guess the lay person would. I, it's, it's, it's layered. It's, um, it depends on what I need or what I want. So I, ha- I have like a social graph and um, on that graph, there are many different kinds of friends and people who want to connect with me in different ways. Some people want to have a long correspondence over a long period of time, but they probably don't want to meet me. I mean, maybe they might, I don't know. And there are some people who I've known for a very, very long time and we kind of have like small talk. You know, and my, my friends from like school, for example, like I, I still talk to them. But I, you know, they're, they're, you, can, you can talk to someone for like a decade and, and not be as close to them as someone you just met and, or you just exchanged a few tweets with even if you, if you find that you have the same common understanding of something. But I mean, to, so, which isn't to avoid the question entirely. I think, um, I think my, my brain can handle or like, you know, just my, my day-to-day life can handle about probably about a hundred people. So, I mean, I, I keep track of about 500 on, on Twitter and I guess, you know, there's Facebook and, and Instagram and stuff. And the, and the other thing is, I'm not actually an amazing friend. So there's this great, there's this great um, quote from Kobe Bryant talking to, I think Ariane, I don't know if it's, no, it's just some interview. It's some interview where Kobe Bryant is talking about friendship, right? He, he says, a great friend will, you know, remember your birthday and, and uh, you know, go out for, for lunch with you and all those things. And he says that he's very bad at doing that. And, and the thing is, and he's the interesting thing in the interview is he's also careful not to valorize that or make that like some kind of step like oh I'm so great because I'm Kobe Bryant and so I don't need he's like you know I'm I'm just bad at it I'm bad at like keeping up with stuff see so he he says I have kind of peers so you know he he texts like other like high functioning basketball players and and he has all these kind of people that resonate in the same frequency as him kind of like they have the same priorities they're ambitious and like so those are his friends but he doesn't have like there are parts of friendship that are kind of he's just not good at and it's not really a part of his life and he does and he sees it as a weakness i believe that he's honest when he says that he sees it as a weakness and yeah so i'm also not super good at that kind of um, constant day-to-day touching caring you know, like even even with my family, I don't really like hang out with them very much. Like I, I, hang, like, I mean, I go to go to birthdays and and stuff, but I, I'm not good at the, hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Like I'm not so great yeah. at that. But I'm very good at when someone is having a really bad day or they, you know, they're going through like uh, dramatic changes or something like that. I I can, I can sit with someone and talk to them for hours. So you know, it's it's almost like. There's a certain, I don't know, like a product market fit kind of thing where, you know, you have some way of being, some configuration of, of yeah. who you are and you want to find people who appreciate that. And I think early in my childhood, you know, like I was, um, the friends that I had growing up, we were friends, but like it, it didn't satisfy me, which is why I guess I'm so drawn to always looking for new people, which is, uh, you know, people weren't very ambitious. People weren't. They're just kind of happy to to exist and get by. And that's not a bad thing either. I think you can have a very meaningful life. You get married, you have kids, you just you have a you have a stable job, you you know, all that, that kind of picket fence life. 
which uh, if, for me, it just, it, I feel like if I tried to have that, I would constantly be dissatisfied. And yeah. it's funny because sometimes you see the conflicts on, even on Twitter even, right? Like uh, people have different priorities and different ideas about what a good life is. And very often when people encounter someone else who has a different configuration, they almost take it personally. Like how dare you have priorities that are different from mine. And, uh, you know, I like, I actually like to find people who are different, but can kind of enjoy that difference and not see it as, Oh, you know, like, uh, you want to have kids and I don't want to have kids and that kind of thing. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, so if Kobe Bryant's thing that he, you know, his product market fit is basketball, is yours sort of like a authenticity and curiosity about the world and then also this sort of like, you know, meta level understanding of what it is you are doing and, you know, analysis, like living in public and then analyzing it along the way and drawing lessons yeah. for yeah. other people? Yeah, I think, I think a, a phrase that I've used a few times is uh, a man of letters which I think has been used to describe people like uh, Benjamin Franklin and, and Voltaire and Montaigne, like you know, all these essayists, like Seneca, like just all these people. Okay, I don't know if Seneca wrote letters, but um, you know, there, were, there was this class of, and I guess I'm, rose, I'm, I'm idealizing it a bit and kind of rose-tinted glasses, watch it, you, know, you get it. Just this idea of, you know, you're some nerd, right? You know, I, I guess I fantasize about like, you know, the... the, the coffee houses in Vienna where people would yeah. go and one guy's working on a math problem and another guy's working on a, I don't know, inventing economics maybe. <laughs> and it's just this, this, this very intellectual um, bookish kind of exchange of ideas. I, maybe I'm imagining it and it wasn't really the way I'm imagining it, but I know that there are other people who are also drawn to that same thing. And so I'm just trying to find those people. And um, yeah, I've, I've always wanted to do that. Another another thing that I've I found myself telling people is like just ima- imagine like this this mental picture of like a child with a with a ham radio like you know the kind of radios that you can just tune in to whatever frequency and there's this story I I I, I don't I don't even know if it's real I don't know where I'm getting it from but it's like there's some kid who picks up a radio and fiddles with it and then he's like call sign whatever I'm so and so do you hear me and then it's like a captain of a ship at sea it's like hello so-and-so, we hear you. Uh, this is the captain of whatever ship. And the kid's like, holy shit! Like, I'm a child and I'm, I'm playing with this little device and there's like a captain of a ship responding to me. I'm, I'm a part of this network. Or, you know, I'm a part of this world. Like, I'm just as, as much uh, a being in this space as that guy who is so legitimate and powerful. And like, um, yeah, I've... I don't. I can't recall what was like my first taste of that particular feeling. But once I've tasted it, I'm like, holy shit! Like, why isn't everyone obsessively doing this? Because it's to me, it's it's like drugs. Even it's just uh, crazy. Right. And yeah, and on Twitter you can do that. You can tweet anyone, and like you know, sometimes they reply, which is amazing. Yeah. The you know it is actually I, I do see you as sort of, and I you know consider myself here a little bit, but not to my own heart, but like sort of wired for sort of a positive sum, very abundance oriented world where I think most of the other world is, is wired mostly for scarcity. I'm going to read this yeah. one quote by uh, Jonathan Franzen it says, love is always specific. Trying to love all humanity may be a worthy endeavor, but in a funny way, it keeps the focus on the self, on the self's mm. own spiritual well-being. Whereas to love a specific person and to identify with his or her struggles and joys as if they were your own, you have to surrender some of yourself. 
and the quote may or may not get close to this idea, but some people think that you can only have, you know, that your friendships are determined are, are defined in some sense by their exclusivity. That hmm. you know, if you're only friends with five people, that means instead of ten people, that means I as one of five are more special um, or more meaningful. And I'm, I'm curious how you think about that sort of notion of exclusivity or scarcity as it relates to hmm. meaning. Right. So I. I mean, I guess the honest answer is I don't actually know for sure. You know, I do think it's possible that... So I have friends who, you know, so we all met when we were like 12, 13 in school. And like, I know I know groups of guys, for example, who I went to, a, I went to like an all boys school. I know groups of guys who they met when they were 12. And now that they're 29, like the same three or four guys in each cluster, like, well, they were all the best men at each other's weddings, you know, they, they're still best friends to this day. And they kind of locked into that, that little um, cluster. And pretty, I'm definitely sure that, you know, they experience a bond with each other and with that unit that I probably have never really had. And maybe with my wife, but that's like, you know, still, it's, you know, it's, it's a different category of relationship. And I don't actually have experience so I have some very, very old friends, but my relationship with my very old friends tends to be, you know, it's like we are, we are comets passing through each other's lives like once a year, once every two or three years. Whereas these guys, they're really close and tight-knit and they probably, you know, they share their feelings daily even. And I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure that they experience something that I probably have never experienced. And I think that's okay. I think, uh, and the, Inverse is true. Like I have experienced things that they will never experience because they don't do what I do. And I mean, it's, it's amazing enough that when we sit down for a conversation, we can, they can tell me about their life and I can tell them about my life. And while neither of us will entirely relate, you can kind of try to approximate it. You can kind of try, kind of try to imagine what it might be like. That said, so I think there may be something to the exclusivity thing. Um, which you know so I, I married my first girlfriend and we married really young and um, it's great I highly I highly recommend it for anybody who's you know it's, it's a, I kind of semi-jokingly recommend it because you know it kind of flies against conventional wisdom and uh, you know it's uh, but it's, it's a fun kind of a slightly abrasive slightly cheeky thing to say like oh you should just marry young find the first person you like and marry them and, and you know you get to save time dating you get to build a long you know you just have so much experience with one person and for me i have always been drawn away you know like uh in in moana like the movie like you know she's drawn like the people in the island are happy living on the island but she's like always drawn to the sea so if you are drawn to the sea then uh, my belief is that you have to go so it's kind of a uh, and yeah, let, let's, let's talk about the sea because you, you, just what you were talking about before, we could see a bunch of movies about, you know, friends playing sport. Like there's a lot of, you know, imagery of, for us to imagine sort of, yep. you know, intimate male or female bonds, mm-hmm. you know, mean girls, you cover a lot. But the sort of friendships that you, and sort of communities that you architect on Twitter mm-hmm. and I sort of frequent a little bit, I think mm-hmm. are somewhat new. Like I think it's yeah. this somewhat sort of like, you know, meta sort of, you know, like the community that Anna is, is creating. But talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, you know, you've been on Twitter for a while now, even the last yeah. few years, how have you seen it evolve in terms of what types of characters or what types of conversations or communities are, are being formed because of it and what that, what that looks like and pretends. Yeah. So newness, like novelty, you know, it's kind of a, 
it's like you know it's like the quote about how like everything changes and everything stays the same kind of uh like de- depends on how you want to frame it and and you ch- you change the frame depending on what is useful to you you could say that you know technically nothing is new and like what we are doing now even is kind of a, a just a different version of like back when when um like Da Vinci was writing letters to out of Florence, but at the same time, there's there's quite obviously, I think, if you experience it, there's obviously like a qualitative difference in the like this like the change in how quickly you can respond to a tweet, for example, and and like how much how much information you can convey in a video in real time, like that does definitely change something qualitatively, I think. Uh, but okay, I mean to answer your question, you asked about how Twitter has changed. So when I first joined Twitter, it was I just created an account because people were talking about it, and you know it, it feels like I mean everyone has multiple accounts on multiple platforms. I think, oh, you know, everyone I know has multiple accounts on multiple platforms. And in the early days, it was uh, you follow your your friends that you already know, and you follow celebrities maybe, and people will retweet back then i mean in the super early days there wasn't even a retweet button and there was like the convention of you would copy paste the whole tweet and add rt in front um but yeah so people would do that and then you reply to your friends and you know it was fun for a while but i think the novelty of that kind of wore off and there's kind of so there's like a when twitter first started like in the 2010 ish it used it, it kind of grew a little bit and then it slowly kind of decayed as people you know People would still have Twitter accounts, but I don't think they were checking it actively every single day, obsessively the way I do now. And I, I didn't do that back then. And I think things started to change when they introduced retweet. So, so I mean, if you can, one way of looking at it is by with each new feature. So like retweets changed the game slightly. Quote tweets changed the game pretty significantly. Threats changed the game slightly when you could start um, doing multiple posts. Talk a little bit about the community that Anagat or you know sort of wrote about that I think you're sort of broadly a part of. I think there has that there, there's always some group of people like that in any point in time, like just the intellectual class, I guess. And again, it, it's it's slightly challenging to talk about these things because for every people for every person who's kind of legitimately eagerly trying to participate in a group like that, there's also like um there's also people who like the poses. Like again, so talking about poses is is a fraud because you know anyone can accuse anybody else of being a poser, and then we get into oh my god, that's a, a back and forth, and uh, it becomes gatekeeping, and 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 it becomes you know I'm a real intellectual, you're not. I'm a real, uh, which is which is so t- boring actually, and and frustrating. But you know, if if we practice good faith and we we frame it as okay, you're you're legitimate if you are. And I, and I use legitimate in a very, you know, just casual way rather than like, oh, here's some class of legitimate intellectuals and here's a class of fakers. And, you know, anybody can can kind of start somewhere and end up somewhere else. So I'm not judging. But I think what Anna is trying to do is she's, it's very, it's very similar to what I'm trying to do. But I think she's approaching it in a slightly more structured way, which is she's trying to explicitly find people who are kind of a, explicitly trying to do public intellectual work. So there's this really great essay. Um, I can't remember the exact title. It's something like, if you Google the phrase, 
a public intellectual creates a public. If you Google that phrase, you'll find that essay. And the idea is that, you know, a public intellectual is someone who's facing an audience and the audience doesn't actually exist in the world until that intellectual shows up to address. So it's, it's the people who show up to listen to that person's ideas. And yeah. then there is that kind of community that is, I mean, and you can think about it as, you know, every single book, popular enough book functions that functions in that as that kind of role. So anybody who's written a book about, you know, even like so James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits and it's about habit forming. And you can assume that, oh, people who read that book, if they all go to an event about that book, you can make a whole bunch of assumptions about the people who are there. Like, oh, they're interested. If they're interested in atomic habits, they're probably interested in, you know, kind of rational analysis of, of human behavior and stuff like that. And so I think what Anna is trying to do, which I, I enjoy, is she's trying to find people who are trying to create publics and also people who are trying to be intellectual. So it's, it's just another way of saying people who are trying to be intellectuals. But I think framing it as people who are trying to create publics is a very enriching way of frame of looking at it because the, the, the crisis in the world by some of our assessments is that, you know, there used to be certain massive publics that were unified or, I mean, again, we are, we're probably oversimplifying, but like the, the general public is very fragmented. It's very, um, people are disoriented. They, they don't know, you know, the fewer people are going to church, you know, so like the things that people used to be aligned on kind of crumbling or just less relevant or less, you know, if, if, if it's like, a, if you're using like a magnet analogy, it's like, it's less, strong it's kind of like weakened ties people don't know where they're facing they don't know what they stand for and so i think anna is trying to find people who are trying to do the work of building communities building and again community may not necessarily mean like oh you're like a like like crossfit or something where people are really actively you know like showing up every day and doing an activity and and like it's almost slightly culty it could even just be a very loose community of of like a generally wide group of people who kind of generally agree on certain principles of uh, public engagement or certain principles of how governance in a nation state should be or something like that it's never been easier so it used to be the case that if you wanted to be a public intellectual you needed to have some form of output so i mean i guess you can Back in the day, long ago, you might literally be a street corner preacher or yeah. whatever. So, I mean, any, anybody can do because of Twitter and YouTube and whatnot. Like anybody can now, you know, have a message and have it be shared widely, and that allows you to, which is which is it's still crazy. Like you know, I I still sometimes think like, wow, like this is an option that we have that. Like, you know, 20 years ago, it was so much more difficult. Like you need to go through all these gatekeepers and you need to find a publisher or you need to find, a, you need to get yourself a TV show maybe to get to a large audience. And now like anybody from his bedroom can be tweeting or making videos and you can build out that thing. And so I guess, um, so there are a lot of people who would be good at this, but might not realize that they would be good at this. And so I think what Anna is trying to do is, find people who have the potential and the capacity and who have something meaningful to say and kind of like teach them, like um, coach them, support them in helping them find their voice or find their platform, find their people. And because when you do that, then I guess the hope is that we can like uh, kind of 
soothe the the frothing masses and give people um, things to orient around and kind of uh, engage in different communities and yeah. so on. Um, I, I, I see Twitter as sort of like the closest thing we have to a permissionless sort of global brain. Uh, yeah, or like for sure. Brain idea journal. Is, is that how you, you see it too? For sure. Yeah. It's uh yeah. Every morning I wake up and pretty much one of the first things I do is check on Twitter and it's, yeah, it just feels like it just, it just feels so, you know, I've described it as transhuman even. And particularly for me, because like I make so many threads and I have like nested threads of threads and so on. Like every day I find new people who have discovered some old tweets that I've done. And, you know, I can, I have a tweet about how like, um, when someone favorites a bunch of old tweets of mine, and you can take, it's like a choose your own adventure. You can go through one thread and then go through another thread. And like it, it every time somebody favorites an old tweet of mine, like that tweet is, is somewhere in my brain, right? Like, like the set of words or whatever, the idea is somewhere in my brain. And when they favorite it, like it feels like that part of my brain lights up. And, and like, you know, I, I'm reminded of that idea and I, I'm, I find myself thinking about it again and I may want to elaborate on it. But whatever the case, it just feels very almost like cyborg reality. Like, you know, the, like the normally when you send the time. Yeah, it's just amazing. It's super uh and it feels it feels powerful, it feels exciting, it feels like uh, I can sometimes it feels like like it's it's a part of me. Sometimes it feels like something outside of me that I can interface with that it's just mind blowing. I don't know if it's uh, useful, but it's just, it's amazing that it exists. It's amazing that it's instantaneous. And, you know, right now, like you can, it might sound dramatic, but anybody can, you know, you can go on Twitter, find someone somewhere else in the world, even who might be working on something that you care about or who might be, you know, who has the answer to a question that you have or who has, you know, and, and you can find them and you can make friends with them and they can change your life potentially. And you do you yeah. like that 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 possibility is always in the air for me with Twitter. Which I don't know if lots of people relate to, but um I I'm always finding the other people who relate to this because it, each new person like that I add into my social graph makes the whole experience even more epic. It is great. I mean the what Twitter also shows is just how how unprepared we are to have to uh, have conversations or disagreements with other people or just how poor we are or how, yeah. how we don't learn the sort of meta skills. It, you know, mm-hmm. we get offended easily. We, you know, assume yeah. the worst, passive aggressive, yeah. et cetera. Going back to making friends, what do you think you sort of uniquely understand or, or appreciate or, or have a skill around making friends mm-hmm. that you think if other people followed, they would do a better job making friends? Right. This is, this is a great question. And uh, there's so much to say that I, I, I might end up writing like a whole book about this, I think. But to try and cliff notes it a little bit, where does it start? What's the most important thing? I think I think the most important thing is, well, okay, so there's the technical side of things, which is kind of like um, how do you manage the small exchanges that like how do you so how do you reply basically, right? Or how do you but even before that, I guess to do that, you have to believe that it is worth doing. And a lot of people don't even believe that it's worth doing. But you know, so I have a thread about how um how I manage disagreements. And, you know, so a a simple model of disagreement is we each have different life experiences, beliefs, experience, whatever. Let's just say different life experiences. And so when we encounter the same 
event or, or stimuli, we each then process that stimuli from our respective life experiences. And then we each have a belief or a, an opinion about that, that event based on our experiences. And because we have different experiences, we have, a, we have different ideas and those ideas will cause a disagreement, right? And the problem is um, most people, when they have a disagreement, they are not very interested in understanding the other person's life experience. And like the, th- the thing that I'm obsessed about is I'm always freaking curious to understand other people's life experiences to just, like, I just want to know. It's like, you know, what, what have you experienced or what have you seen? Like, if, if we have a disagreement, like, why? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested to understand, like, could I be wrong? Or, you know, could you be, could we both be wrong? Like, is there, what is it that you know that I don't know? And like, how do I get you to share that information with me? And, and in practice, you know, if a disagreement is about something personal, like it's not a trivial, like some, you know, if it's something like, if it's about your identity or if it's about your culture, you know, people tend to get very defensive and they, they and understandably so because they've encountered like kind of abrasive conflict. But uh, I'm very, I'm relative to the average person. I'm very patient in trying to, you know, like if someone's, if I say something and someone gets mad, I'd be like, okay, I, I try and read the person and see whether the, them getting mad is because they're defensive or because they're like really kind of at the far end of like a rage monster, like kind of. And you know, if I had infinite time, I believe I would be able to eventually get those people to come around. But like time is precious. So I have to focus on, I have to prioritize the people who I think I can, I can kind of come around to. And yeah, so I just want to very often with average, like, you know, ordinary people who aren't rage monsters, um, if they experience an interaction like maybe two or three tweets deep and they can see that I'm kind of earnestly curious to understand their point of view, they tend to like drop their their armor and be, you know, so I'm, I'm just curious. I'm like, oh, you know, like, what is it? Why, what what makes you see that? Or like, what is it? What am I not seeing? Or, you know, I, I will restate kind of my, my experience slash belief. So I'll be like, oh, you know, I like, so I say something and someone says, oh, that's stupid. I'm like, oh, okay. Um. What am I not seeing? I, I I'm coming from it this way. Where you come from? And yeah, half the time people just don't even reply. But like the other half of the time, or like you know, ten percent of the time or whatever, when the person like, oh, you didn't see this? Well, you should see that. You should read this book. Maybe I I this this is how I see it. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Like you know, once you have that interaction a couple of times and it's positive, then it's like now you have like this valuable sparring partner who, I mean, even just the process of going through that exchange and neither of you is insulting each other too badly it that itself is kind of pleasant like it just it feels like a positive interaction and then subsequently you like you do that and then over time you become friends it's just you know how you you manage your your conflict so i think i have another thread somewhere about how there are people who i have never had strong disagreement with but i i, I find them inaccessible like i just can't get to them because when I ask about their experiences, they just don't respond at all, which is their right. I mean, they, no one is entitled to another person's experiences. But like, you know, we don't really, we have might have like a very mild disagreement, but you don't want to talk about it. And then we can't progress. Whereas I've also had like very heated, intense disagreements with some people, but like, because we each have strong feelings about the thing that we're disagreeing about. But like, because of the way we are disagreeing and like asking each other those questions, at the end of it, you're like, wow, we're like great friends because even though you have different positions, you each had put in the effort to share your point of view with the other person and, and try to 
get them to see your way and you try to see their way. And yeah, so that's, I, I don't know how many people even consider that this is possible. And you know, there's, there's, there's layers to this. So a part of it is recognizing that your own mental model of the world is flawed no matter what and, and imperfect. Like some people don't even consider that and that if you don't have that kind of first principle consideration, then you're never going to be able to have that constructive disagreement. Right. And this was sort of the meta level framing that I was referring to. I feel like this is relatively new in our culture where we can talk about, you know, things like this, you know, yeah. at a meta level that'd be somewhat common. Right. Yeah. So it used to be that we would have these very small group of select people who are like, you know, like Marco Polo back in the day, or, you know, maybe like, like travelers and nomads who would go from city to city or country to country, and they would experience different cultures and they would almost be, I guess, diplomats and ambassadors. Like they would, they would have to carry multiple cultures in their, in their mental model. Like, oh, these people are like this. Those people are like that. I have to translate, you know, this to that to have a conversation. And now, and, and most people, you know, they kind of, they live in their small town and the values of that area, the values of that area, the experiences. of So you kind of have this very um, stable framework to operate in. But like this, now everyone is Marco Polo, basically, right? Or the world is coming at you. You know, you're, you're living and you're going about your life and you say something and suddenly like a whole group of people from the other <laughs> side of the world are like, oh, what you said is wrong and it's offensive. <laughs> and it was not a thing that people had to care about previously. And so, so for those of, for people like me and Anna and, and kind of other, if you grew up in the library and you were always reading about different cultures and different, you know, like I remember... I was like seven and reading about, I think, um, like ancient Egypt. And I'm like, oh, wow, these people are like ancient Rome. I'm like, oh, those people had, you know, different religions and, and they, they worship different things. And like, it was a great civilization and it's gone now. And like, you know, there are people now who believe different. Like it just, be, just by being exposed to such a wide range of things from a young age, it just becomes obvious that, oh, everything is kind of subjective. Everything is kind of, nothing is permanent. Everything can change. And it's, it's, it's difficult for people like us, I think, to fully appreciate how uncomfortable and unsettling that feeling is for people who kind of grew up in a narrower context where, you know, maybe like uh, you, everyone in the community believes in the same religion and, and the same lifestyle and like you've never met, you know, a gay person, for example, right? Or you've never met uh, someone who's uh, atheist, right. maybe. Right? And, and so for those people, when they first encounter something like that, it's, especially later in their life when they've had like decades of experience of everything being a certain way that I guess it's very unsettling. It's all, it's traumatic actually, if you think about it, it's, it's like, um, yeah. Uh, there's this funny video, video. No, I mean, yeah, just, I, I don't, I don't want to segue too far, but just, um, there is something fundamentally, um, unsettling and traumatic about encountering something very different than what you're used to. And I think, um, People don't have enough sympathy for that. So I, I try to be as sympathetic as I can. And again, again, um, it gets meta because that's true kind of at an individual level, but people will also weaponize. So everything will get weaponized in some way. So like I can say, so right now I might say um, we should sympathize with people who are not comfortable, who are not used to the world changing around them. That's true. But at the same time, you know, like how how long must you wait, right? For for people who are kind of refusing to change and refusing to listen, and they will. It's easy to use the statement "we should sympathize with them" to kind of entrench, 
yeah so it's 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 dodgy business and again like so right now at at to go back to like celebrity and stuff when you have like uh, 10,000 followers ish nobody really you're not really going to encounter like a torrential wall of hate or, or crazy responses but yeah so imagine if i had tweeted we should sympathize with people who are having trouble adapting right so it, in a in a in a one to one conversation like this and we can like elaborate and and you know kind of clarify and so on and so forth that is like non controversial non is fairly trivial yep. but like it's easy to imagine like you know if you have like a million followers like you know just imagine if let's say um there's some some celebrity tweets that like you would get like thousands of people saying oh you're telling me we should sympathize with uh, racists and you know and then right yeah so yeah so it's um it's nuanced and also while twitter is amazing for if if you know how to have a nuanced conversation encountering someone else on twitter who also knows how to have a nuanced conversation it's amazing but there yeah. are lots of people who have not learned how to do that and are probably not interested in learning how to do that and uh-huh. so we have to navigate that as well as we can uh, i think everyone chooses kind of a point on a spectrum of how much they want to engage and you know at the, at the far end i think you have like the nasim taleb kind of a i'm going to block every imbecile that doesn't understand which uh you know i try to i try to be sympathetic to that as well but you know you have to you have to navigate somehow and you have to make decisions somehow so you prioritize based on your values based on your your mission i guess we've got you know, 10 10 15 minutes left i want to make sure we co- cover a couple of your big ideas uh a couple of come to come to mind for me are our project management and then mm-hmm. uh you know, zen detachment versus uh, strong feelings um let's start right. with product management you say uh, sort of a lot of life is product management relationships is mm-hmm. product management in a way that what do we not fully appreciate or understand about product management i'm not very good at managing projects to begin with um so i grew up as a very kind of um scatterbrained obsessive book nerd i guess and uh, i was I was so I did very well in school early on but then later on when it got more complex I didn't and um I have like I can I can trace my life in terms of like all of the bad so many of the bad things that have happened to me I mean or you know like the negative consequences I faced have been from my poor project management so for example so I I live in Singapore and we have um military training for men and every year we have like a fitness test and uh, I used to There's a period of time where I was failing my fitness test and I mean you have to go for the test and at, at the very least and like there were like three years in a row I think where I didn't even do the test or I failed it and like I would then have to go like there's like the stupid process of um you have to if you didn't do it and you didn't do the remedial training and you didn't something then you got to go to the Ha huh, this is just is really annoying bureaucracy. I mean I guess it's like filing taxes it's kind of yeah. it's like, like if you don't do it you're going to get in trouble but you don't want to do it's just not fun to do and it's just you know you you just got to do it it's just a part of the bureaucratic kind of boring project of life and I w- I'm still pretty bad at that but like um uh why I brought up project management is kind of um hmm I think I was having like So what's interesting to me is that while I am bad at this sort of kind of uh that things that I don't love I am pretty good or pretty decent at managing projects that I like and so it's interesting to me when I get DMs from kids I I do get quite a lot of DMs from teenagers and stuff and they tell me that oh I'm terrible at everything I can't even I can't even like 
read books that I want to read. I can't even, you know, I'm a, I get, I once got a guy who's like, I'm a, I want to be a film critic, but I can't get myself to watch films. I'm like, uh, you know, so think about the reason I think project management um, as a concept became interesting to me is just the sheer amount of variance in people's competence at it. So like, you know, like if you take life skills, or a lot of life skills, like um, what, what are the basic life skills you need, right? So you need language. Most people can speak fairly well, you know, like enough, enough to get by. Most people can, I mean, okay, if, if, you, if each example that I give, if you dig into it, you'll find that actually there are, there are extremes. But project management is a thing that, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's like wishing for more wishes, like if you're good at it, because if, if you want to acquire a skill or you want to get better at managing your money or you want to get fit or you want to build a company, like whatever it is that you want to do, anything worth doing. So in people sometimes say anything worth doing is difficult, which is true, sure. But like anything worth doing is also a long-term effort that's bigger than what you can do in a single day. So if you're going to do something that takes multiple days to do, then it's a project because you have to cooperate with your future self and you have to have some kind of plan, even if the plan is kind of like flexible and changes over time. And yeah, so I think a tweet I had was... um, some people dig around their whole lives and other people build cathedrals and rocket ships. And like that tweet um, got a few retweets. But what was interesting was that I got a lot of DMs because of it. Like there were kids saying, oh no, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to end up digging around my whole life. How do I build, not even a rocket ship, but like how, just how do I, you know, not dig around my whole life? Because you can, and, and what I do dig around a lot on Twitter, but the, because there's kind of um a framework that I do it in that's like, you know, so I, when I'm curious about something, I make a thread and then I add that thread to another thread. So like I can always pick up where I left off. So I think there's a quote from one of the Mythbusters guys who said something like, uh, science is just messing around and then writing down your findings. Right. So that's project management. Right. So like you can either just be messing around and get nothing out of it, or you can mess around and record your findings. And now you have, now you're doing science. And you've also talked about it in the context of relationships, like, each relationship needs its own economy or yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little bit what, what idea there is. Right. So um, I got married young and my wife and I, I wasn't great at kind of um, doing the day to day work of kind of uh, maintaining a marriage. And again, people don't really talk. I, I mean, I feel like people, I'm sure if you go looking for it, you can find resources, but like in kind of um, mainstream conversations, you don't really see people talking about these things. And, you know, like divorce rates are so high and so many people are in unhappy marriages and stuff like that. And it's just kind of, you know, if so many people are getting divorced and so many people are uh, unhappy in their marriages, like clearly there's some some missing element. And, you know, so I thought about it a lot and uh, I did a bunch of reading. And the sense is basically um, the, the kind of uh, cruel irony of super intimate relationships like a like a marriage is that even if your partner is your favorite person in the world and like, you know, the average person annoys you 5% of the time, 10% of the time, and your partner annoys you like 0.1% of the time or something like that, because you're so close and you're so, you see each other so much and you go through so many things together, every mistake that you make or your partner makes will affect the other person. And so it's very easy to end up being upset with the person who 
upsets you who who statistically upsets you the least, but because of raw base rates, like you meet them so much and you go through so much together, like the ch- the the number of opportunities you have to upset each other or to cause each other pain or frustration or distress is so high that over time it's like inevitable that your spouse will upset you and hurt you more than anybody else. Like just the person that's closest to you is gonna hurt you the most, and so you have to have some system of dealing with that. And if you've never had such intimate relationships, you know, so if your family was dysfunctional, which is like, so family is like the first relation, set of relationships where it's so closely tied up, like mother, child, father, child, parent. And yeah, so I think what happens to a lot of people is that they are not trained, basically. They're not trained to manage conflict. They're not trained to... So most people's way of dealing with conflict is to walk away or to avoid it or to ignore it because that does work for most interactions with strangers, but it doesn't work when you're both in the same house, in the same life. And so again, like no one really talked to me about, like my own parents didn't talk to me about this. But yeah, so you need to figure out, uh, so if you want to be married and be happy and uh, you need to find a way to, you you know that you're going to upset each other. So you can't, you can't avoid upsetting each other. So you need to have a system for, managing the inevitable conflicts that will happen and managing the inevitable frustrations that will happen. And and it's also, you know, you you will feel like, you know, you're married. So, you know, you, you can, like you're tired. You come home from work and you're tired and you're like, you know, let's not do this today. Let's do it another time. Let's hit snooze on difficult conversation. And yeah, you just keep hitting snooze and then the next thing you know, you don't love each other anymore and you're just unhappy. And so again, you, you need, uh, project management is about recognizing that you can't hit snooze indefinitely. So you need to kind of zoom out and see the process of what's going on and that you can't keep hitting snooze on a difficult conversation. So what you can do, you can, you can schedule, you know, like once a month, we're going to go for coffee together and have all the difficult conversations that, you know, we kind of don't want to have day to day. Or you can be like, if we have, if a difficult conversation needs to be had, let's drop everything and have it. Like, so there's no kind of, um, one size fits all rule, but you need to have some system because if you don't have a system, then you are just allowing randomness to not push you around. And yeah, so, and if you know, if you, if you, I'm sure that there's like a marriage counseling Twitter and you'll find people disagreeing and some people are like, oh, you should always, you should never go to sleep without, uh, without having the difficult conversation. And some people are like, oh, you should always schedule and then they'll have a fight about it. But any system is preferable to, well, I don't know if any system is preferable to no system, but like you have to, to figure, you, have, you have to find out what your system is because you always have some system. Yeah. Like, so if, if you don't have a system, then you have the system of whatever it is. And, and it's prob there's definitely something bad happening because of your system. Like whether it's a chosen system or it's the inherited system, there's, there's some costs to it and you should be mindful of what those costs are and you should choose the costs you want. And like, you know, spouses should make that decision together so that it doesn't feel like, you know, we, we always fight when we go out for dinner and that's not what I want. You know, it, it, the meta fight, the meta, very often I think people actually can handle disagreements and frustrations pretty well, but it's how those frustrations get dealt with that become even more frustrating. So it's very often like, you know, I think there's this famous scene in that movie with, uh, I don't know how famous it is, but it's a Jennifer Aniston movie about a breakup, I think. And like, she comes home and her boyfriend's playing PlayStation, I think, he's playing some video games. And she's like, oh, did you do the dishes? And he's like, oh. I mean, it's a, 
they end up having a big blowout fight over the dishes and they break up. But it's not really a fight about the dishes, right? Nobody actually cares about dishes that much. It's more of, yeah. it's what the dishes represent about the state of the relationship between the people and like, you know, do you respect me or do you not? Do you care about my, do you care about what I care about? And so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so last question, you wrote this post a, a few years ago about uh, your sort of evolution, you know, the pendulum between having mm-hmm. strong feelings and embracing that versus, uh, you know, striving for sort of Zen detachment. I'm curious, uh, you know, a few years ago, what you sort of think now is sort of the ideal balance of when to sort of lean into strong feelings versus when to, uh, to deploy Zen detachment. Right. So I think, I think this is probably the hardest one of, like, it's a, it's a manifestation of the hard question in life. So there's, there's many different, so if somebody asks, like, what is the hard question of life? You know, it's like, oh, there's many different ways you can, you can express it. But this is, that is one of the expressions, which is, which is basically, you know, asking how should I feel or how should I respond to life? And, you know, I, I think you almost spend your whole life learning and figuring that out. And um, there's this quote I like by uh, Nisir Gata, I think. Um, it, it says, um, love tells me that I'm everything. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. And between the two banks flows the river of my life. Right? And, um, you know, it's like, ooh, it's so profound. But it's just, I mean, so what, what does that mean, actually? It, it means that, you know, like and, and another thread that I have that's kind of in the same spirit is um, how open should you be with your friend? I, I guess it's the same topic. It's like how much, how intimate should you, um, it was about chill, you know, the, the concept of chill. And like, you know, uh, the one tweet I had was, if you want to have deep, intimate relationships with people who are going to cry, ugly cry at your funeral, like it requires the opposite of chill. Like if, if you have a chill friendship, like your whole life, then when you die, they're going to be chill. So, oh, he's dead. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, just, which is, yeah. But at the same time, if you're, you know, there's on the other side of it, like you can't say, oh, I refuse to chill. <laughs> and therefore with every relationship I have, I'm going to be super dramatic and I'm going to, you know, like you ask me, how's your day? I'm going to freaking tell you my entire, like unpack all my trauma for you. Like that's, that's also not ideal for how you want to have a, relationship like you know no you, nobody wants a friend who's like bleeding all over them all the time like that's just that's rude right so you know it's um, a bunch of different metaphors sometimes i use a pendulum metaphor sometimes there's a tightrope balance metaphor there's, there's a lot of different ways to frame it and i think actually what i currently like is uh the idea of like an uda loop which is like the fighter pilots um observe orient decide act and then when you act, you observe again. It's like this, this loop of, uh, you know, it's kind of a very active responding to reality kind of, it's like dancing. So dancing is an Uda loop. Like you have to, you know, or playing music. Like there's no, like, so if somebody asks, you know, when you're dancing with someone or you're playing music, like, should you play loud or should you play soft? Like, it depends. It depends on, on how the vibe is going. It depends on, and you want to be reading the room and the room here is anything from, you know, your emotional state, um, your friend. So again, you, you, when you meet someone and you sense that they're having a very bad day, you might, you know, okay, I'm going to hold back on the funny joke. I was going to tell them, but, you know, that kind of thing. So you want to, you want to get better at reading, at reading a situation, at reading a room. And again, this takes life experience, right? Because um, you might think someone is being chill, but actually it's, it's the calm before the storm of they're chill because they're angry. And like that kind of thing, 
you can't really reduce it to like a simple playbook because it takes uh, experience, it takes uh, reflection. So uh, I think how I would talk to, let's say, a, a, some some kid. I, I I frame a lot of things in terms of um, what will I say when a kid asks me about it because I get it, it's a it's a useful thing. And um, if a kid asks, oh Visa, how should I manage my feelings? Should I be passionate or should I be zen? Should I be you know? And I'll say you know um, the first thing you want to know is you want to come if you have the space for it. You and you should make space for it if you don't have space for it. Um, is to come to an honest assessment of your own state. Which is so much harder than people than people realize it is because it's very easy to to think that you should feel a certain way or think that you shouldn't feel a certain way and uh, kind of you know like should you be offended about something or should you be upset about something someone called you a name should you let it slide and not care about it or should you you know stand up for yourself you know it's a, it's a, so you have to kind of go away a little bit and reflect on your own and I, I recommend journaling and just. Ref- Figure out what you what you feel or what you think you feel, and then you. But that by itself is not entirely reliable because it's you're a biased person writing about your biased feelings, and there's like this this kind of uh, you get it. It's a there's, there's there's a bias there that you can't escape. And so once you kind of have your hypotheses about what your feelings are and what your state is, and you know what do you care about, or, you know, or, you know, so even your 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 preliminary answer to yourself, your own question of should I be Zen or should I be passionate or whatever then you go and you talk to your friends for example and and you should hope uh, hopefully you have a slightly diverse set of friends and if you don't you should try and diversify your friends a bit because if all of your friends are from the same kind of context they may all be they may have a systemic bias where they're all missing the same point or they're all saying things the same way so you try and ask a few different people about what they think and you know ask them how and it's you ideally you want to get you know responses both positive and negative and ah, you see how this itself becomes this massive project of uh, trying to find out just what you think and how you feel. And again, you're never going to solve all of it. And then, you know, you, you want to do some reading, you want to consider, I would say consider the extremes because it's like a barbell strategy, right? So I think some people fall into the trap of trying to have like some kind of middle way of, you know, not too chill, but not too passionate, which is, it's just shitty because then you just kind of, miss out on the best of both worlds or you get kind of like a lukewarm nothing. So I would say, you know, if you haven't experienced any passion in like, I don't know, some time frame, let's say for me, maybe like a month, but maybe three months, whatever, like just within, if you haven't felt any strong feelings in a year, that's troubling. If you haven't had a moment of peace and chill in a year, that's also troubling. So because like, you know, you expect variation in, in, in the human condition, right? So you want to, so, I mean, just, uh, so the pendulum swings, whether you like it or not, actually, by like the natural state, it's very, it's flowy. And a lot of us, I think, expend a lot of energy trying to stabilize things, which isn't a bad thing. So again, this, like any point I make in this context, like the opposite point is probably also true in some context. So it depends on the context. Why well, people should follow you, on Twitter or, 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 or really follow your work is because you are sort of, you know, living these sort of questions in public. Uh, you are learning as you are, as you are doing, and you are sort of pushing the boundaries of, of authenticity, of curiosity, of, of connecting with, uh, with others in ways that other people can model, see what they do like, see what they don't like. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, it's pushing us forward. If I, thank you. So 
<laughs> I, I, I appreciate that very much. Yeah. So, uh, Visa, for people who want to learn more about your work, they can follow you at VisaConV. They can also check out your work at VisaConV.com. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. This has been a great episode. Thank you for having me. It's a great conversation. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 